This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We have to, a vacancy to fill on Hamilton City Council. Of course, uh, uh, last Thursday, a week ago today, the election uh, of the uh, Ford government included Donna Skelly as uh, the newly elected MPP uh, and uh, for, for Glenn Book, of course, and uh, she's going to be sworn in at the same time on June 29th. But that means at that point she's going to give up her seat on city council. Now, there is an election coming up, a municipal election, October 22nd, for a new municipal government. But the Municipal Act states that because of the time frame that city council has to appoint somebody to do the, the, the role of Ward 7 Councilor. Now, there's some stipulations on that, and there's all kinds of speculation as to how they're going to go about this this process. Uh, joining us to talk about this is John Best, who is, of course, the publisher for the Bay Observer. John, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be with you. We knew this and it was inevitable, of course, with that race out there. Notwithstanding, by the way, because we always kind of, I guess, characterize that as a two-person race uh, between Donna Skelly and Judy Partridge, the two sitting city councillors. But the NDP had a very strong showing, so I guess that was in doubt right up to election night. Yeah, I think there, were, uh, there was certainly some question, and then uh, when the first polls came in, uh, very briefly, it, it actually looked like the NDP candidate, uh, who was from Welland, uh, was actually ahead. But uh, then things uh, turned around fairly quickly, and uh, as it turned out, it was no race at all in terms of uh, between Skelly and Partridge anyway. Now, this is not a new process, especially for Hamilton City Council, but, I mean, we need to put this in perspective. Uh, This happens oftentimes on city councils, uh, town councils, whatever it is, right across the province, where people decide to to move up and give it a shot, whether it's federally or provincially. Uh, And if they are successful, and there's been a few of them around here, uh, the burden on that case is on city council. Sometimes it's a no-brainer. If it's early in the term, of course, that there'll be a by-election. And that's, frankly, how Councillor Skelly won that seat uh, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. when Scott Duval moved up. But uh, this is a different situation, isn't it? It is. Uh, with uh, only a few months to go, uh, it, uh, certainly a by-election, uh, I don't think anybody in their right mind would want to see a by-election. And In fact, just the time it would take would leave that seat vacant longer than it probably should be left. It's uh, it's the biggest ward in the city in terms of population. So, uh, you know, there, there's a need to get some representation in there one way or the other as quickly as possible. So with that in mind, uh, the process begins. Uh, we, uh, I guess the most recent one that we can reference, of course, was uh, the death of Bernie Morelli, the Ward 3 councillor at that time. Uh, a few years ago, and council uh, decided to uh, put former mayor Bob Morrow into that position, which I thought was a great decision, and and, and I mean even in hindsight, because I think Bob did an outstanding job as as the fill-in councillor. Yeah, he was uh, you know someone that was accepted by all sides. He was not a polarizing figure, uh, and I think he uh, you know he he didn't speak a lot when he was on that brief period on council, but he. He, you know, he certainly was a sensible voice uh, on council. So, all in all, that was a that was a good appointment. Well, how should we do this? I mean, there's really no hard and fast rule about this, and and there are some people on council, John, that that seem to be leaning towards somebody that's already got political experience, uh, and then you've got well, Councillor Green, who's who's going the other way, uh, suggesting there should be a process. I guess it's not like an application process. Yeah, I read I read his uh, notice of motion, and you know, frankly, I don't have any problem with with certainly with the intent of it. Um, he's objecting, obviously, to uh, you know, sort of the backroom aspect of of making the appointment. Uh, but when I when I read his no, uh, notice of motion, I'm not sure it would it would frankly solve the problem. 
it, it calls for an open sort of nomination process, open to all. So that would include former councillors and, and private citizens. And then they'd be given an opportunity to make a brief presentation to council, and then council would vote. But the the names of the uh, of the contestants would be delivered sometime in advance of that day, and so it would still allow councillors behind the scenes to put their heads together and uh, you know do a little uh, wheeling and dealing. So if if it's the wheeling and dealing that he's trying to avoid. I, I'm not sure you'd accomplish it, uh, although I, I certainly have no issue with the idea of opening up the process. I, I guess the only other aspect I would say that with the shortness of time uh, that we're looking at, uh, literally, you know, four or five months, and then you got the summer break where virtually nothing is, is happening. It's really only, uh, you know, about three months of, of meaningful involvement. Uh, it, it, that would argue, I think, for someone with some council experience so they don't have to go through a, a learning curve. Uh, you know, I mean, they were referring to Skelly as a rookie after three years on council, so I, I don't think, given the shortness of the term, that you'd necessarily want someone with no experience. There's a point that I want to get your read on here because I, I'm, I'm hearing a couple of different things about this. Uh, usually when this sort of thing in, uh, occurs... Uh, and we can even go to the federal level back when uh, Michael Ignatieff stepped down as the liberal leader a few years ago and Bob Ray was appointed as the interim leader. It was with the proviso that he was not going to run for the leadership. And and mm -hmm. what they try to do in situations like this is have whoever the, the candidate is who's going to be appointed uh, sign something or pledge something that they're not going to run in the upcoming municipal election because obviously this appointment would give them a leg up on anybody else that wants to run in Ward 7. But I've heard, and again, I've heard different opinions on this, but from one individual who knows a little bit about the Municipal Act that says, well, you can't hold them to that. that, that, that they, they can say that if they want, and Bob Morrow did, and, and of course, you know, true to his word, did not run uh, in that campaign in the, uh, the, uh, the last provincial or municipal election, rather. But if somebody says, yeah, sure, yeah, 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 and, and takes the appointment, my understanding is they can still run again, um, which is, I think, pause for concern. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they probably could. There, I mean, there might be some some kind of a legal document they could sign, uh, you know, with uh, that's lawyered up that that might make it impossible for them to run. But on the other hand, if they do run, if they do say they're not going to run, and then they renege on it, uh, that's going to be a huge campaign issue that I would think would go against the individual uh, anyway. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point you have to. There has to be some trust in in people's integrity. Um, so you know, I I hear you on that. But I I think that if somebody went back on their word, that that would uh, very much militate against them in in the campaign that's going to follow almost immediately. I I just don't know how that you know from a, just from an electoral standpoint. I think I think that'd be a kind of a foolish move. Better, better to get somebody who clearly is not going to run again. Let's let's talk about what the process might look like. Uh, and and again, to go back to the Ward Three situation with the death of uh, Bernie Morelli, uh, I, obviously, I, I guess there were some other people that might have been considered, but it just seemed as if uh, it was a fait accompli that Bob Morrow was going to be the guy. Councilor Marula brought that motion forward, and and and. You know as well as I do, John, that there's a lot of d conversations that go on in the back offices of the councillors there 
sure. about who should do what. What about this? Will you support me on this? Well, what about this person? Not in the back offices, Bill. They're never there. It would be in a coffee shop. Somewhere. Okay. All right. <laughs> Point taken. But but it happens, and I understand that everybody loves to just jump this word and transparency this, transparency that. But deals are made in every level of politics, municipal, provincial, and federal. Deals are made uh, on the patios in the summertime or wherever it's going to be right now. So this idea of transparency, uh, I'm not saying it's a sham, but I mean it, it's it's window dressing because we still know that there's going to be ultimately some lobbying going on being among the 15 councillors about who's going to actually uh, get this job. Well, it, it goes back to the to the basics of uh, of uh, electing people in our our electoral process. You try to elect people who are of sufficient character that you think will behave honorably. If you try to build safeguards in uh, to prevent against dishonorable behavior, uh, you, you've really lost already because what you're saying is the system is so corrupt that uh, it's impossible to have. Uh, people sort of voluntarily being honest and that we somehow have to put all kinds of shackles on them. The reality is you can't stop counsel. I mean, you know, it's, it's great to talk about transparency, but uh, let's go back to uh, last October when Donna Skelly was trying to get an investigation into the Waterfront Trust, uh, a very legitimate uh, issue, uh, especially in view of, you know, stuff that continues to come out about the thing. Not one counselor, and that would include Green, uh, would second her motion. So we're, we're being a little selective about transparency. And the, the fact that she couldn't get uh, a seconder, I would suggest, was the result of some backroom uh, dealing and wheeling. Yeah, and, and that's been associated with the Waterfront Trust uh, for, for a long time now, and we, we get that. And it doesn't matter who seems to get elected, they seem to, to fall into that web, unfortunately. But but this this whole idea that well this is going to be an open process and and everybody's going to see you know exactly how this is going to happen is is just not going to happen and we both know that I think everybody realizes exactly what's going to happen but but let's let's talk a little bit about the reality here I mean the, the Donna Skelly gets sworn in at the end of this month which means we're into July August and there are only two scheduled meetings of city council in the summertime there were used, no committee meetings by and large. So there'll right. be one meeting in July, one meeting in August, and basically those two meetings are really just housekeeping measures. Most of the staff take their holidays in the summertime, so there's, they're short-staffed. There's very little new work that gets done here. Uh, so you're not going to get any contentious planning meetings or, or anything like that. Now, there can be things that crop up. We understand that, and, and that has happened from time to time. But more often than not, that individual, whoever it's going to be, is only going to attend two meetings. The rest of it is is going to be constituency work. And and I guess if you have somebody who has no political experience, who has no experience in what to do, who to contact, et cetera, and how to actually do this, uh, that's a pretty steep learning curve considering the fact that they're going to get thrown right into the deep end of the pool to what is now can still one of the largest, well, before this election, the largest ward in the city with the most population. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, so much so that I think it's unworkable. I, I, I think this is a situation, frankly, that does call for the appointment of a of a, an experienced uh, former counselor who's prepared to to do the job for that period and not run again. Um, Skelly's staff, I mean, let's face it, constituency work uh, is largely, the day-to-day grunt work is largely done by staff uh, that the work for the counselors. They're they're there for some of it and uh, you know some perhaps some of the more contentious or more visible aspects of constituency work but staff do a lot of this so that hasn't stopped 
But how much of that staff that uh, Councillor Skelly has are going to go with her to the provincial job? Well, I, I don't know that. Uh, I don't even know if she knows that. But, uh, you know, there certainly will be. There's other staff around. There's uh, There are experienced uh, constituency workers who are now doing fill-in work uh, on a rotating basis when there's holidays. I mean, the bottom line is there, somebody will be doing the work. Um, it's not likely that the new councillor is going to be out on the street, uh, you know, doing uh, grunt work on, on the constituency level. But given the shortness of the time, I think you, in this instance, uh, while I like the idea of opening it up to uh, people that are not on council, I think given the shortness of this term and, and as you mentioned, the intervention of the summer break, you, you just want somebody that really knows their stuff and uh, intuitively can just get things done and know who to call on staff to you know speed up things. Uh, in this instance, uh, well, I'm generally in favor of any kind of increased transparency. And and the other problem here is that I don't know that the motion, as Councillor Green has put it, is going to stop any of the backroom stuff anyway. So there's, you know, it, it's really what it comes down to is do you trust your colleagues? It sounds like what he's sort of saying is I. I trust them as a group, but there's, but as a, you know, there's individuals I don't trust. So, you know, somehow that you know having it in front of the full council is uh, is going to create greater transparency. I mean, the other thing is you're going to have. Let, let's say you did open it up and you do get 25 applicants, and some of them are very well-meaning private citizens. Uh, is there going to be a deliberation in public? Are we going to talk about people and their qualifications and uh, in an open meeting? I, I hope not, uh, because certainly that would be detrimental to, especially the ones that aren't successful. Uh, you know, so I, I think there'd be an in-camera piece anyway, and at that point, you know, anything can happen once that door is shut. Look, at, I can tell you this much. I mean, council is right now, I know we're just about out of time. Council is out right now is in charge of appointing citizen members to the different committees that are on here. Uh, and I know that there's wheeling and dealing and horse trading that goes on with that all the time. They don't simply look at all 15 candidates or whom, whatever the number is and say, well, that one had me. No, it's okay. Uh, yeah, that guy worked on my campaign. That person worked on my campaign. The one, okay, fine. I'll do that. And when I want somebody, it's going to be, you You have to back me up. I mean, that's that's how politics works, whether you like it or not. But I got a question for you just as we wrap this up. Uh, having said what you just said about the intent there, is Councillor Green's motion more of an indication of his, his lack of, of respect for the other members on council to do the right thing? Yes, I, I don't think it can be interpreted any other way. Uh, clearly, there's some aspect of it that he mistrusts, and so what that comes down to is uh, he there's a... Uh, He's suggesting, and in fact, I think he said it, uh, well, he resigned from the committee, I guess, after um, after yesterday, um, Not, uh, although they did refer his motion to a future committee. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, what he's saying is that he does not trust the, the present process, and, and in that regard, the present process is something that uh, his colleagues uh, are have developed over the years. So, yeah, it, it means he doesn't trust them, or some of them, anyway. Uh, even the motion steeped in politics, obviously. John, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
I want to talk about uh, something that council talked about and, and actually gave the thumbs up to just uh, a little while ago. Uh, that's It's called Waterfront Shores. It's the development around uh, Pier 8, uh, that area down by the Williams Coffee Pub and, and the Discovery Center, which used to be Sarcoa and uh, may still be. Who knows what's going to happen with that? But anyway, there's some grandiose plans for the rest of that whole property. And uh, we knew about the competition, and of course, council made their selection with Waterfront Shores. Uh, and they have uh, endorsed that now. They've given the approval for that. So what happens next? Well, Chris Phillips is uh, the City of Hamilton's lead on the West Harbor Waterfront Project, and uh, he uh, graciously joins us to talk about some of the things and maybe clear up some of the uh, questions that some people have been asking over the while. Chris, thanks for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Great to be with you again, Bill. Now, when we get a, a, a story like this that the city has given a thumbs up, is is the process over right now? Are these the guys and uh, they can start putting shovels in the ground as soon as they get all the necessary permits? Not entirely, but we're we're pretty close. So, first of all, I certainly don't want to downplay uh, the milestone. This is a significant uh, milestone. Uh, th- this announcement uh, that council ratified last night uh, is a is a significant. Uh, it's a, it's a big deal uh, as far as moving forward. Uh, we now have uh, a uh, a firm commitment and approval from council to name Waterfront Shores uh, the preferred proponent, uh, the winner, for the, for lack of a better word, of, of uh, this uh, RFQ, RFP process. Uh, there still is a critical next step where we as the city need to negotiate the actual development agreement with Waterfront Shores. Uh, that development agreement is, is really the contractual uh, element to this, the, the formal development agreement between the two parties that we can actually obligate both parties to to uh, what it is that we said that we were going to do. Okay, let, let me just side, ask, let me just stop you there and ask about that. When you say you want to uh, negotiate the contractual agreements, what sort of things are you going to be talking about? I know you can't get into specific numbers right now, but but just uh, at, at one level, I mean, people are saying, well, what, what are they going to talk about here? What are they? Is it money? Is it what they're going to build? Is it when they're going to build it? What what are you looking at here? No, the, the contractual obligation is exactly kind of tying in contractually what two parties said. So from the city standpoint, we laid out an RFP document that laid out very critical factors that they must meet. Uh, Waterfront Shores in their proposal laid out specific criteria that they said they would meet. Uh, now it's about kind of making sure that both parties are agreed to those terms. There's no renegotiating of terms themselves, uh, the terms that uh, Waterfront Shores put in their proposal. This development agreement is just to contractually obligate them to the terms terms that are in there. Uh, everything from how many units they're going to build, the type of units, when they're going to build it, how much money they're going to pay. Uh, other things, though, such as insurance provisions, what happens if a, if one of the parties doesn't live up to their obligations, uh, what happens in, in the case of worst-case scenario, what happens if there's delays. Those items are in the contract as well. Have you, as the city, done due diligence on these folks? I mean, I, there's no questioning, of course, the, the you know the credibility, of, for instance, of of, of the architect and, and some of the people behind this. But you know, let's let's get into money for a second here, Chris. Uh, are you confident that these guys have the financial resources to carry this through? Because we've seen, not with something as grand as this, but in other projects the city has become involved in, uh, where halfway through it, uh, the 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 money seems to fall apart and they just walk away. Sorry, we can't do this. Uh, you know, the, the condo development right across from the YMCA downtown comes to mind, but there have been other ones. Uh, do you know, have you seen the numbers? Do you feel that these guys are going to be good for what they're suggesting? 
Uh, yes, in fact, we, we've we've done basically a three-year process to get us to this point. I know that uh, I mean I've been on your show many times talking about the process. A lot of people have asked about the how why is the process taking to uh, so long? Uh, why are we seeming to take uh, you know small steps towards the ultimate goal? The first part of the process was actually our request for qualifications. It really was about who the team members were. Uh, yes, to your point on financial, there was actually a complete financial analysis done uh, on all of the firms involved. If we go back to some of the time I was on your, your show back then, uh, there were four, or, sorry, 13 teams who actually applied uh, to be a part of this, put in a request for qualification. Uh, I would say that all 14 firms passed all the qualifications in our process, we said we were going to shortlist that down to five. We did. Waterfront Shores was one of those five. Ultimately, we had four proposals. So we're, we're completely confident in who Waterfront Shores is. Let's just really, maybe for you to kind of say who is Waterfront Shores, because Waterfront Shores itself is actually a, a new entity that's going to be established, but it's a new entity of uh, longtime partnerships that have happened and built and developed projects all over, uh, mainly over the GTA, starting and led by Citizen. Uh, it also includes Fernbrook Homes, uh, the specialized soil remediation and construction skills of GFL Environmental, and the real estate investment expertise in Greybrook Realties. And some of the projects that people may be familiar with in the broader GTA, certainly the Absolute City Center Condominiums in Mississauga, which is the Marilyn Monroe Towers or the Absolute Towers that you see off the 401, mm-hmm. uh, Pier 27 at Queen's Key in Toronto, right opposite Red Pass Sugar, as well as three buildings on the, uh, in the, the corner there where the Esplanade is, the Sony Center, Front, and, and, uh, Front Street, uh, uh, and Young Street in Toronto. Uh, so these firms have, have significant development experience. And, uh, you know, first of all, all four of the, of the bidders eventually we had uh, tremendous confidence in. Certainly Waterfront Shores is the winner we do as well. Okay, so, so you've, you've made that clear then, that the money's there and you, you feel pretty confident. These guys have a track record, obviously. This, it sounds as if, just as you explained, the, this, this team that's coming together now, because it isn't just one entity, it seems to be about four of them coming together. It's almost like a dream team. Uh, yeah, I think it is. I mean, that was one of, I, I think, one of the things that, that we as a city should be really proud of. All 14, or sorry, all 13 firms uh, who actually came forward at the uh, RFQ process, all but two of them were actually consortiums of other, of other development firms kind of coming together as a team. You see this a lot in, in many projects, mainly in the GTA and certainly in Toronto. Uh, it, it allows companies to kind of uh, bring their, their different expertise together. Some may have an expertise in commercial, some in retail, some in residential, some in high-rise or mid-rise, that sort of thing. So it allows them to kind of come together and, and uh, gain synergies off each other. It also allows them to share risk, uh, quite frankly, on the financial aspect uh, as well. Um, in this particular case, uh, all of the firms have tremendous track records uh, in and of themselves. And what was pretty intriguing about Waterfront Shores at the RFQ process was they not only had individual uh, uh, aspects to them uh, that, that were significant, but they also had significant projects that they actually did together. So they had a track record as an entity in different places as well. I don't want to try to draw, tie these together with the stadium issue because they, they are apples and oranges. I get that, but but we did have problems with uh, with delays and not meeting deadlines, et cetera. And it, it happens in projects. We understand that. But uh, is the city cognizant of that as they drop these contracts to make sure that things are done in a timely fashion? 
No, we sure are. In fact, that's the whole nature of the development agreement itself. But I think even more so, uh, um, Bill, what we've done is we've uh, systematically uh, looked at how things like delays could actually happen. So in this particular case, the city is not selling the nine development blocks directly to the entity, to Waterfront Shores. What they are doing is they will draw down ownership on a block-by-block basis, as they put in their proposal, um, so that they only have ownership of the individual blocks when they're about to build on them. So that, first of all, allows the city, reduces the city's risk of exposure for um, not living up to obligations. Whereas the city actually retains ownership uh, in the blocks that are not yet developed. Uh, so if we were working, looking at a worst-case scenario, uh, albeit uh, I, I think that's always kind of a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a fool's game to do, because uh, I, I think we could also look at the best-case scenario. But if we were looking at the worst-case scenario and, and uh, the developer was to uh, only uh, work on the first two blocks, the city still owns, retains ownership on the other seven. But with that also uh, is the fact that the city financially benefits over time for this project as well. So generally speaking, real estate goes up in value uh, year over year. Um, and, and that's generally, and obviously there's, there's uh, you know, ups and downs to the market. But with that said, the city will also participate in the increase in value as this project goes on uh, because the development firm will draw down uh, the blocks over time. Chris, there are two elements that, that seem to be getting an awful lot of attention on social media and from different parts of the community. I want to address both of them if I could. And uh, The first one is the is the affordable housing element to this. Uh, uh, 5% is what has been indicated here. Some people suggest that's too low, uh, and I know that was discussed at the council meeting yesterday. Councillor Collins all that made some very cogent points about that. I'd like you to touch on that. But the other element was a clause that said that this was only going to be affordable housing uh, for a certain amount of time, for a certain number of years. In other words, there was almost like a sunset clause on affordable housing. Maybe you could clarify that. Well, let's start with the affordable housing aspect. Uh, look, I realize that affordable housing has been an issue uh, that uh, some in the community have raised. Uh, we've talked about it on this show. Um, there are some who believe uh, that the city should have put a, a larger percentage of 5% uh, affordable housing on Pier 8. Totally understand that. I will tell you there were others in the community throughout our consultation who thought that we shouldn't put any affordable housing in there at all. From a from a city staff perspective, our whole kind of uh, point in this, our whole kind of job is to try to, to get all the different feedback from different parties and try to come up with the best, most balanced uh, kind of plan to put forward to council. And back in November 2016, we did. We kind of thought, okay, in this particular area, uh, here's what we think is, is a, uh, understandably a modest step towards ensuring affordable housing. Uh, so we put forward a recommendation of 5% affordable home ownership units dedicated for Pier 8. There were some who didn't like that at the time in November 2016 and still don't like that today totally understand that. Uh, and it's totally valid. That's the direction that staff uh, kind of made. That's the direction that the council had. And that was a compliance issue for all the proponents who actually put a proposal in. They had to meet the 5% affordable housing. If they didn't, they were knocked out of the competition. They were not qualified. So as we come down to this particular um, proposal, Waterfront Shores actually uh, has Ham Habitat for Humanity Hamilton as their partner. 
They had a letter of agreement right in their proposal. And Habitat for Humanity has a great track record, as you know, in this community Mm -hmm. for over 25 years of assisting low-income families attain home ownership. That's actually the key element to that. This is low-income individuals who actually have the ability to attain home ownership. And so Habitat for Humanity Hamilton laid out uh, in their letter to the city through the Waterfront Shores proposal how they would do that. Uh, they said that they, they wanted only two-bedroom family units. Uh, they said that uh, one of the great unique parts of Waterfront Shores and Habitat's uh, partnership is they will phase these units in over time in every development block so that these units wouldn't only be at the last part of the development uh, and they wouldn't be all segregated in one building. Rather, they'd be spread out throughout. Um, that, that it certainly allowed Habitat for Humanity, who, as you know, typically when Habitat does houses, it's typically a single-family detached home or something to that manner. Um, this allows them to try to hit a different target market with the type of housing that it would be. Um, Habitat will actually uh, uh, take all obligations under the program in order, to, uh, in order to achieve it. So is it rent geared to income social housing? No, it's not. Uh, this is affordable home ownership uh, for families uh, that Habitat uh, typically and, and usually uh, administers under their program. Uh, we think it's a great first step in the direction of trying to uh, to uh, get this goal. Is okay, it, but, is but what about what about this, no, this uh, what about this alleged sunset clause that it's only going to be affordable housing for a certain number of years? Yeah, the uh, the sunset clause piece is a complete misnomer. What Habitat did, which I actually applaud them for, one of our criteria was how would you actually put in your proposal the idea that you would. Um, uh, give continuity to the affordable housing in time. And what Habitat for Humanity said is uh, they, they would actually give a guarantee that at least for 15 years, at least 15 years, that the, the actual home itself would retain uh, either with the homeowner, uh, meaning their family, or with Habitat for Humanity themselves. But let's keep in mind, Habitat for Humanity has an excellent track record in Hamilton. Over 25 years, only one family has ever sold their unit uh, as per the program. So I think that the misnomer here is the fact that people are looking at the 15 years as though it's a maximum. In fact, it's a minimum. And I would argue that, that there will be over 60 families who will live on Pier 8 for a generation be lifted out of poverty as a result of it. But but if they decide to sell, that owner decides to sell, obviously it goes with market rate and it becomes not, it, it, well, it's no, by definition no longer affordable housing. No, not at all, Bill. I, in fact, Habitat for Humanity has a first uh, right of first refusal to so purchase. So they, they would hang on to that then? Uh, uh, they, that would be up to them at the moment in time. I think the key, though, is that Habitat for Humanity has an equity base in these facilities. That's how they their model works. Mm-hmm. And they do excellent work all around Hamilton uh, for all sorts of different families. Okay, so we've got that cleared. i got, uh, I, I got to get into the, the idea about the Discovery Center because it's been very contentious right from the beginning. And I know that you have maintained, if you had a buck for every time you said it's not for sale, Chris, you'd be a wealthy guy. I get that. But there are still some people that are questioning this, and it has to do with a clause that was in this initial agreement with Waterfront Shores that says they have the first right of refusal to purchase this, which indicates to some people that at some point in the future the city is thinking of selling the, the property. Sorry, Bill, there's no, there's no such clause, Bill. 
Uh, th- there is absolutely no such clause in any agreement with Waterfront Shores or in their proposal. Uh, the the Discovery Center was never part of the RFP. Uh, what people are, what some in the community are confusing, that could be a combination of miscommunication potentially from the city, could be a combination of multiple things going on at the same time, or need I say, it would be possibly some who just wish to confuse the issue uh, specifically. Okay, so but clarify it for no, us then. There is no clause on the Discovery Center. Discovery Center was never one of the nine blocks for development. There's no clause in Waterfront Shores' uh, um, uh, proposal, and there's no clause in the approval that Council just finished approving last evening. Uh, I... W- personally, will probably be the one who writes the report on the Discovery Center to come back to Council. Council gave us clear instructions to look at the possibility of putting uh, of some sort of interaction between the Discovery Center and the RFP. Um, it was never part of the RFP to begin with. That's why they passed the motion that it is. Staff still need to bring forward a report, and, and we will do that in due time. Uh, but there is no deal, no clause, uh, no any commitment to Waterfront Shores or any one of the four proposals uh, in this RFP process for the Discovery Center. All right, so is, is, it the city's in intention, is it the city's intention to hang on to that property then? In, in, in for the foreseeable future, or, or if something better comes along, will you consider that? Uh, first of all, that'd be council's decision, right, Bill? I, I, I'm, a, I'm the lead on this project. From I take direction from city uh, council. City council has not passed any motion to sell the Discovery Center. Chris, I appreciate the time on this. I, I hope we've clarified some of this stuff, but uh, thanks so much for this. I know we'll be talking again. Thanks so much, Bill. Chris Phillips, uh, lead on the West Harbor Waterfront Project, which uh, gets one more step uh, towards uh, completion. Well, at least the beginning of completion, anyway. Uh, This is not the end. I guess this is just the end of the beginning. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's uh, been one week since the provincial election, and uh, Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives, of course, were victorious, majority government. They uh, will apparently get sworn in at the end of the month. And uh, Mr. Ford, in speaking with the media yesterday at Queen's Park, suggested that he may actually call the legislature back to work within a couple of days of that, because there's, uh, there are some outstanding issues that he wants to deal with. Joining us to talk about this is Henry Jasek, political science professor at McMaster University. Uh, Henry, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us again. Good to be with you, Bill. Uh, so once the dust settles, and it's been a week now, uh, and, and of course Mr. Ford's had a couple of media conferences, and uh, well, you know, Kathleen Wynne, of course, they, they had their last cabinet meeting, I guess. Uh, what's going on at this stage? I mean, th- this is obviously a transition time, but uh, I mean, June 29th, in just a couple of days, he's going to be sworn in, become the premier. Uh, I assume that's when we hear about his new cabinet. So I would imagine there's a lot of uh, jockeying going back and forth right now. Well, I, I think maybe there's a lot of people who are sitting by their phones waiting for a telephone call, <laughs> uh, hoping that it's going to be Doug Ford saying, you're going to be my new minister of such and such. Uh, but I, I think a lot of work, what's going on right now, is a lot of the civil servants up in cabinet office have been preparing documents, and they're going into Doug Ford and to uh, his immediate staff and saying, okay, we uh, heard what you had to say in the election campaign. We read, you know, what all the promises you made. Uh, this is what we can do. This is how long things are going to take. These are the problems with these promises. And, and also, here's a whole bunch of problems that are left over from the last government. And uh, one of those is going to be labor relations, beginning with York University, which is uh, a real problem. Yeah, and that's been going on for quite some time. It, it looks as if Mr. Ford is favoring back-to-work legislation. 
Well, interesting that the same thing that uh, was uh, that I think the uh, government, uh, the past the outgoing government was going to do, because it's been going on for a long time. And if he lets this go, and we're still in have these strikes going on at York University in September, there's going to be many, many angry students and even more uh, angry parents. And I don't think he can he can put up with that. I mean, he right away that would be a very uh, dark spot on his government to open up if they let uh, chaos uh, ensue at York University at the beginning of September. And I know back to work legislation is always controversial, and and mm-hmm. you know those that are on strike uh, are, are usually the ones that are suggesting. And I, I know Andrew Horvath and the NDP will probably chime in on this as well. Mm-hmm. That uh, that it's our legal right to do this, etc. The government shouldn't get in fear. But there's the old mantra, I guess, Henry, that if you're going to make uh, controversial decisions. Do it early in your mandate. Yeah, well, you have to, I mean, they have to, something has to happen. I mean, the strikes have gone on a long time. A lot of students have been uh, inconvenienced. I know, uh, you know, at, here at McMaster, we have people who uh, were given uh, offers to come to Mac, and they turned them down saying, no, we want to go to York. And now they're calling up the university and say, can I have my offer back again? <laughs> well, a lot of those positions have disappeared because Mac has offered them to other people. They said, yes, I'm coming. And so, the, you know, the offer that was made and, uh, you know, uh, a few months ago is no longer, no longer on the table. And there's a lot of unhappy students right now. And as I said, I'm sure the parents will be even more unhappy. Henry, when they're having those discussions, and, 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 yeah. and I know that bureaucrats tend to get a bad name in some people's minds, that there are way too many of them who are overpaid, that we, both of which are fallacies, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality here is that they're the ones that actually do the day-to-day grunt work, that, uh, that get policy done, and they've got the facts and figures. Are, are they going to be candid with the, the new premier and simply say, Mr. Ford, I know you talked about this during the campaign, but uh, these numbers here indicate that that's not going to be really possible to do, or it's going to be very difficult. Or, or do they just say, well, here are the numbers. You guys decided yourself. They, they, they are prone to give opinions, are they not? Well, they're prone, but they give options, and they say, okay, okay if you want to spend a whole lot of money on this item, uh, you're going to have trouble doing it on these other items. Or, uh, or if you want to put into effect a certain type of policy, these are the steps you have to go through, and it's going to take a while to go through them. I mean, mo- most people think that you're a majority government, you snap your fingers and things happen. Uh, the, the studies that have been done of, of, minor, of majority governments find that usually in, in a normal course of a year, there's only three really big things governments can do because there's just a lot of things about implementation. I mean, you, you, you know, getting a policy up and going and getting people to comply with it and doing all, uh, you know, doing all the organizational work to make things to work uh, it is is a lot of work. You have to mobilize a lot of people. There may be agreements you have to make with the federal government that to change things with municipalities, certainly with municipalities. And there, you know, it, it's it's a lot of work to change policy, and people don't realize how much there is. But I think the real big problem it's not we started talking about York University and the strikes on there. The big problem that this government's going to have is has a lot of negotiations to go to go on. And one of the groups that uh, has is without a contract for a long period of time are the doctors. Yeah. And they are they're steaming right now. And I, I think that is going to be the big early issue that the government has to face. How does it come up with an acceptable contract with uh, the physicians and surgeons of the province? And uh, that is uh, that's a difficult group to deal with. And of course, you know, people want their physicians and surgeons to be happy because they want them to, to take care of them. So this is going to be a big problem. Not to mention down the road, there's all sorts of public service, there are police forces, there's uh, firefighters, there's civil servants, there's teachers. I mean, there are so many other groups out there they're going to have to negotiate with, and this is going to be 
complicated and difficult, and it's probably something no government really looks forward to doing. But it's all in the lap of the new government now. And, and it's going to be very difficult. You mentioned the doctors, for instance. And, I mean, it's not just the uh, the oversight agency, the Ontario Medical Association, because uh, there's turmoil within the doctors themselves. There are actually yeah. splinter organizations there uh, that, that don't think the OMA represents them. So, I mean, that's, that's going to be a daunting task to try to, first of all, get them at the table and try to find some consensus on this. And and you got just to, to put it in, in context, uh, even with a majority government, I mean, this is difficult. I mean, Mike Harris was faced with the same situation when he took over in 1995, and I think it's fair to say it didn't go well uh, with the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, or anybody else at that particular situation. And I think a lot of folks are waiting to see how Doug Ford's going to handle the situation. Yeah, I know. I remember having a, a meeting with some other people uh, a number of years ago after Mike Harris was out of office, and the big surprise for him uh, that he f- focused on how long it t- took things to get done. I mean, he said, boy, I wish I had it. could figure out how to make things go faster. But as soon as he went in, and even though he had a big majority, things were going much slower than he ever expected. Well, let's talk about implications, uh, because one of the other things that Mr. Ford talked about uh, doing ASAP uh, was his, uh, his promise during the campaign to, uh, to lower the gas tax uh, and, and lower the price of gas at the pumps by lowering the provincial portion of the, uh, the tax on gasoline. And, and, of course, it was, it was a very populist idea. I mean, who doesn't want to have lower gasoline? Mm-hmm. Anybody that drives a vehicle thinks, hey, what a great idea. But uh, with this, as, as the old saying goes, I mean, you know, uh, campaigning is easy. Uh, governing is harder because now it's not – campaign promises don't cost you anything. Uh, <laughs> setting policy does. And, and I, I would imagine that's where these dialogues with staff are going to come into play, uh, where somebody's going to say, that's, that's all well and good, Mr. Ford. But you understand how much money that's going to, you know, mm-hmm. there's going to be a shortfall in, in your revenues as a result of that. And it's going to be in the, into the millions of dollars. I don't know what the number is. I'm sure they do. Uh, and, and that's one of the ramifications. So uh, do you have a plan to, to look after that, sir, or should you develop a plan? The other element that comes with lower gasoline prices is something that we've been debating for the longest time is, is the gas tax money that goes to cities. Uh, that's based on on that big number for for gasoline sales. If that number goes down because the price of gas goes down, the, the amount of money that goes to cities like Hamilton is reduced. And how is the city going to cope with that? Yeah, this is the thing. I think they're uh, having some informal discussions with some people at the municipal level, and I know there are a lot of mayors and councillors across the province who who are very much worried about uh, will there be a cut in the amount of money that uh, goes to the municipalities. And uh, they saw, of course, with uh, with the Harris government back when the last time they were in, they dumped, as you would know, of course, better than me, that they dumped onto the cities. And we still haven't completely recovered from all that dumping that the Harris government did on the municipalities in terms of costs. Well, yeah, and and again, I don't want to rehash the common sense revolution, but yeah, yeah he he did reduce provincial costs because he just passed it down to the municipalities, right. so it went on to our property taxes. Exactly. But his books look better; ours look worse. Yeah, and and we know the property tax is a much harder tax to pay because it's not geared to income. Yeah, it's a lot easier to get money out of somebody who's working, and you just have a, the employer deduct it and send it on to the provincial government. But when you're trying to tax somebody who's out of a job or whose income is not increasing or who's retired or, you know, for one reason or another doesn't have the money, it's a lot harder to get money out of people uh, in the property tax. And, and of course, that, you know, that, that causes a lot of problems for people and a lot of complaining. And the next thing you know, you know, they want to know what happened. How come they don't have any services in the city, which, again, you know better than I, but it's, it's, a, bad, it's a bad tax. The property tax is a very difficult tax and a bad tax. Henry, how forgiving are 
voters in situations like this. I, I understand it's only been a week. Yeah. But listen, I don't care if you're talking about Doug Ford or Dalton McGinney or, or Bill Davis or anybody else. Uh, what gets promised during an election campaign is oftentimes, as Mike Harris found out, very difficult to deliver, even if you have a majority. Yeah. Uh, and there are some things that he's promised that he's simply going to have to walk back on. I, gasoline, I don't know if that's going to be one of them. Yeah. But, you know, like firing the guys at Hydro, which is going to cost in, in excess of $10 million. Uh, which, you know, you have to ask yourself, is that going to be any good to us, and is it going to lower the hydro rates? Well, the answer to that one is no. So the, 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 now it's it's time to assess what, what's going to happen right here, and I would imagine that's one of those conversations that's going on with Ford and whoever is uh, helping him during this transition to say, look, at, I, I know we promised that, but that may be down the road. I don't think that's something we can do right away. Yeah, I mean, I, one way of looking at this is looking back at both Harris and the McGinty uh, when the government, when they came to power, and they started to break uh, campaign promises and what happened. That two ha- more interesting ones from Harris is, because uh, we, we well, I know about it at Mac, they, they, there was an announcement we were building a, a, te- a building for medical technology together with Mohawk mm-hmm. because the city was short of people to do diagnostic stuff, to do cancer treatments, all sorts of stuff, and the doctors say, we can't treat all these people, we can't diagnose them, we don't have the technicians. So the Ray government uh, in its last year said, okay, we're going to build a facility. Well, Harris came in when the first thing he said, he axed the whole uh, technology center at Mac, medical technology center at Hat. Uh, at Mac, and there was a, a huge upcry from the medical community. Community said we can't handle, you know, the people right now, and there's these huge long waiting lists for diagnostic and, and treatment. And, and Harris had to give in. He reinstated that. The second thing he did is he came in, and uh, there was at that point uh, a year or two before he came in. Uh, Ray said, "Well, we're going to we're going to extend the 403 over all the way to Woodstock." And Harris came in and said, "No, we're not going to do that." And all these municipalities between here and and Woodstock, most of whom were conservatives, by the way, mm-hmm. they went to Harris and they said, "We need this. You know, we need this. You know, this road. We need we need to be connected to the 401. We need to be connected to the 403 in Hamilton." And he and he backed down. And then the third one, going to Dalton McGinty, he said, "Okay, no tax increases." He came in and he said, "Listen, we got a five billion dollar." deficit. Everybody wants more health care. So he put on our um, provincial tax at the end of it, and everybody would notice it when they pay it, is they have to pay a special health tax at the, uh, on their provincial taxes. And the interesting thing is nobody complained about that. Uh, the health tax, well, health is one thing you can get away with. Uh, and, and Dalton McGinty did get away with that. He got away with that health tax. And I just saw a, a, a survey of a few months ago, and this was all across Canada, but include Ontario. You ask people, you know, do you want, are you in favor of increased taxes for this, that, and the other thing? The one thing they said, if you, if the money's going to go to health care, I'll pay more taxes. Yeah, that's always a, a seemingly a priority with people. That's right. It's a big. It's a number one priority, I think. We were we were musing on election night when it was pretty evident that this was going to be a majority government right. uh, here on, on our coverage on CHML Henry. That uh, that uh, somebody in in the PC party has already written the speech that yeah, we didn't know the books were that bad. We're going to have to pull back on something. This and 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 because every government does that, right? I mean, they always promise right. everything, and as soon as they get in there, they get a look at the books and say, my goodness. I mean, you know, McGiddy did it, Harris did it, Ray right. did it. Sure. It, it's a tradition at Queen's Park, really, yeah. uh, for them to just slag the previous government and say, you know, they, they've, they've lied to you. The, the numbers are worse than they are. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to have to prioritize a lot of these things. Yeah, we're going to hear it. And, and one thing that this government will have, they'll have Christine Elliott, who I think knows more about health care in this province than any other progressive conservative. And she's basically going to tell Doug, hey, this is the way it is. You start, you know, we got all these big needs. If you don't meet them, you're going to have the people on your back real, real quick. 
And he, he's good. If he doesn't listen to Christine Elliott on health, I think he's going to get into a lot of trouble. How important is it for a, a, a party to define themselves? You know, Dalton McGinney liked to look at himself as the education premier because a lot of his early initiatives were geared towards uh, education, uh, right. and, and, and that seemed to be the mantra at that time. And, and of course, that evolved. He got into alternative energy sources, et cetera, and, uh, which ultimately, I guess, led to his downfall uh, with windmill contracts and things of that nature. But does Ford have to identify? Does he have to define himself? Yeah, I think he does. And, it may, and, and he may have trouble here because the type of things he wants to do uh, may, in fact, quickly people will forget. This is the thing about tax cuts, which I find very interesting in studying them. Uh, or, or it could be any of the, the gas, uh, reducing the price of gas or getting rid of the carbon tax, any of this sort of stuff. You, you get rid of a tax, and people will say today, thank you very much. Tomorrow they've forgotten about it, and they say, okay, what are you going to do for me now? Pe- people forget about tax cuts so quickly. And that also happened to Harris. Harris was quite surprised. He would you know, cut things, and he figured people would you know, give him everlasting thanks. That would last a month or two, and people would forget about it. It, it. It's different when you're actually building or providing services. Then there's some sort of visible uh, you know, uh, thing to see that reminds you that the government did it. Like if they promise you a hospital and they build it, well, you see it. It's there. But people forget about tax cuts, and that's the, the you know, sort of the maddening thing, I think, that uh, sometimes that uh, particularly progressive conservatives often forget really don't are are really shocked them is how how short people's memories are about tax cuts well i think part of the reason for that is it's kind of an abstract discussion isn't it i mean you know when we were having that discussion during the campaign i would ask you know some of our listeners well how much do you pay in provincial tax none of them knew no because it comes off our paycheck we don't know that's right uh, but they all know how much they pay in property taxes because that's coming out of their pocket Exactly. They, they complain a lot about that. And, you know, and, in, and the same thing is they don't realize, they'll complain if they check certain things and they go up, but if, they, if thing, things go down, uh, then uh, you know, they, they say, th- as I said, thank you very quickly, and then they quickly forget about it. And that's another thing, too, is they're going to have to worry about things like uh, insurance policy. I mean, people, you know, car insurance, boy, everybody checks it. How much did I pay last year? How much did I pay this year? And this was a bugaboo with the uh, with the with the government, you know, with the with the uh, with the liberal government, and the, you know, they in minority government after ele- 2011, they Andrea got a promise out of them that they're going to reduce it 15 percent. Well, they didn't quite make that, and that stuck around, you know, that was stuck around their necks, uh, you know, like a dead bird for the for up until to, up until the election. So many different ramifications and right. so many things, and 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 some of the as you mentioned, Henry is contractual. Right. I, I know that one of uh, Ford's other promises was to get rid of the cap and trade system. Right. But we. We've got an agreement right now with California, uh, right. and and I don't know if you can simply walk away from that. I really don't know the answer to that, and I'm sure that at this stage, uh, Mr. Ford and his team don't know the answer to that. So, uh, you know, saying you're going to get rid of it and actually doing it can can be two very different things. Yeah, that's right. I mean, government is so complicated, and the problem with Doug Ford is he's never been in the provincial government. He's never been in the legislature. He's never had to really deal with provincial issues, and they're you know, and I said it earlier on. Well, in some of these things you got to make uh, negotiate agreements with the federal government, with the municipalities, and as you mentioned, now you got to, uh, you know, you have to re- redo an agreement with a foreign entity like the state of California, and and so government is much more complicated than uh, Doug Ford, uh, you know, made out to be. I mean, he had sort of, as people said, he had bumper sticker slogans that everybody liked, but you can't run a government on uh, bumper sticker slogans. The one thing he's got in his corner, though, is as you mentioned with Christy and Elliot, uh, yeah. some pretty pretty experienced and, and very yeah. capable people. I mean, Fidelity, I think, calls, oh, yeah. falls into that category. 
Uh, Lisa McLeod's been around for a long time, so there, there are some some veterans there that can actually lend a hand here. Yeah, they, there's a whole bunch. I would continue on with Ernie Hardiman and yep. I. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So there there are some really. He has a good core of people who have been in you know have been in uh, in in uh, in the legislature for quite some time and and sort of tell them the reality. The problem is he. I don't think he can do everything he promised. He promised so much. And it's just so it's so difficult. First of all, the cost of all those things you put them together, and he never put out a budget onto the cost. So we have no. So he may not know how much everything's going to cost, and I'm sure the civil servants are going to tell him, especially the financial people. Guess what, Mr. Ford? These are all the promises you made, and here's the big sum of money you're going to owe to to, to implement them. And I'm sure it's going to be a bit of a shock to him. No kidding, Henry. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, I love talking to you, Bill. Take care, Henry Jasek, of course, political science professor at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.